This is A Better Life from Feed Into Worlds, a podcast where we explore how immigrant communities are impacted by the pandemic. I'm Mia Warren. Losing a loved one is painful, but during COVID, the experience has become so much harder. Health and social distancing restrictions have limited goodbyes in hospitals and required tiny funerals. It's especially difficult in communities where large funerals are a tradition. People weren't able to come together to mourn. This was the case for Ismaili Muslims. In Atlanta's large Ismaili Muslim community, COVID restrictions made it impossible to practice traditional rituals around death and dying. Healing was delayed for many families. And for some, it's led to questions about the choices they made in their lives. Zuleika Nathu has our story. Jasmine Jawani kneels at her husband's gravestone at a cemetery in Lawrenceville, Georgia. She never thought, coming to America from East Africa a decade ago, that it would come to this. We came here for fulfilling our dreams, our future life. But when these things happen, then we regret that. Why did we came here? The 34-year-old mother of two lays a row of single-stem red roses on her husband's grave. It's still really hard. It's been an year, but still it's hard for me. It's not easy at all. To understand the kind of year it has been for Jasmine, she invites me to her house. Let's go. In 900 feet, turn left. About 10 minutes away in the Atlanta suburb of Lilburn. We sit in her living room, and she shows me pre-pandemic photos of her husband, Asif Purbatani. A family trip to Niagara Falls her daughter perched on Asif's shoulders. A selfie of Jasmine and Asif with an animated bunny filter. That one makes her smile. When I wake up, I see his face on our photos. Like, I have on one in my bedroom, one picture. So I, when the day starts, I start with that, looking at him. She says her husband Asif was the kind of guy who always made sure she was eating enough and getting enough sleep. Asif was the kind of dad who would change diapers and play silly games with his kids in Hindi and English. In a home video taken last year, Asif, a stocky man with an easy smile, can be seen blowing bubbles from a can as his kids try to catch them. In another, he's racing his daughter in the backyard, holding a spoon in his mouth with a lemon on it. After emigrating from Uganda about 10 years ago, he worked as a wholesale grocery supplier. When the pandemic hit, he stayed home from work and wore a mask when he returned. Jasmine says her husband never complained about a headache or fever. So when he did, Jasmine knew she should take him to the hospital. Once there, the doctors just sent him home, saying it was nothing serious. But he didn't get better. Took him again to the hospital. And he got admitted, and there he, they said that he's COVID positive. And though the doctors said, and the nurse said, he is, like, very strong. He is having no pre-existing medical condition. So within two to three days, he will be discharged. That didn't happen. He stayed in the hospital for two weeks. Normally clean-shaven, his beard grew thicker over time. His condition got worse. Doctors put Asif on a ventilator. He had developed a fistula, or an abnormal passage, in his lungs. It got so big, it became inoperable. Multiple tubes were coming out of his throat, and he was sedated most of the time. 
Three weeks later, a nurse heard here, delivered news no family member wants to hear. Unfortunately, it looks like his lungs um, aren't doing better. Jasmine was also recovering from COVID herself and taking care of two kids. So her brother would sometimes be the one to answer calls from the hospital. He's on the other end for this one. He'd record them so Jasmine could listen and try to process the disheartening information afterwards. Oh, there's nothing they can do. Oh, okay. So I think uh, this is the this is going to be a tough situation. They said to me that he was not able to survive, like because of his lungs that was completely damaged. So they said no, he won't be able to survive. I can't explain those in words, like, but that was a very, very saddest moment for me. The hospital said she and her family could come to say their goodbyes. This would be the first time Jasmine would see her husband face to face since he'd been admitted more than a month ago. It would also be the last. That was the only day. That was the only single day that we were able to. They allowed us only one day and one time that you can come and visit him. He was awake and... Uh, I tried to talk to him. Like uh, one day he was saying to the nurse that I want to write something. So the nurse gave the pen and the paper, but uh, he was too weak, so he was not able to write those things. So when I went there, so I asked uh, Asif, what do you want to write? Are you worried of something? Are you worried about me? Are you worried about your parents? Or are you worried about your kids? So he he's just uh, shaked his head that, no, I'm not worried about anyone. But uh, I asked, do you trust me that I can take care of everyone? He said, yes. Then I asked, like, uh, do you trust me that I can take care of myself? He said, no. That's the thing. So do you think what he wanted to write was something to you? Yeah, I feel that. Because he knew that I don't take care of myself. That's the only thing. Mothers never do. Yeah, mothers never do. As a mother and wife, Jasmine realized she was now also the sole decision maker in the family. And her next decision would be the hardest she'd have to make. To let him go, we needed to close the ventilator. So the doctor asked me that if you want, you can stay here and let him go in front of you. I said I won't be able to do that. Instead, she asked if the doctors would remove the ventilator at 7.30 that evening. That time has special significance. Shia Imami Ismaili Muslims, her faith group, believe strongly in the power of congregation and typically recite evening prayers around that time. Even though people couldn't gather physically, Jasmine hoped the common prayer time would help put her husband's soul to rest. By July of 2020, when Asif died, COVID infections in the U.S. were rising in many areas. At that time, almost 3,000 people had died from the virus in Georgia. Muslim burials usually happen fairly quickly after death. Normally, they involve large gatherings to pay final respects. But due to the COVID restrictions, that couldn't happen anymore. Funerals had to be significantly limited. We'll be right back with more after the break. Stay with us. This is A Better Life from Feed in Two Worlds. I'm Mia Warren. 
Let's get back to the story of how Ismaili Muslims are coping with grief and loss in Atlanta, Georgia. To get an idea of just how fundamental these burial rituals are in the Muslim faith, I went to see Dr. Gulshan Harji. She's a well-known part of this Ismaili community and works with them regularly, often supporting people through their losses. In fact, in the Ismaili community and, and actually in the Islamic faith, we are encouraged to go to funerals, even if you don't know the person. The fact that there is a funeral, you are encouraged to go because there is sawab in it. In Islam, sawab means spiritual reward for having done a good deed. Dr. Harji spends most of her days at this busy, free clinic she co-founded in Clarkston, a suburb of Atlanta. Patients here live at least 200% below the federal poverty level. See, Clarkston, uh, because it's mostly uh, immigrants, refugees, unemployed or uh, marginalized community, they are frontline workers. They are mostly frontline workers. So they work in farms and poultry, and they are Uber drivers, taxi drivers, bus drivers. And so we were seeing a lot of COVID. As infections spread, gathering places of all kinds had to shut down. That included Ismaili places of worship, called Jamaat Khanas, which closed across the U.S. Early morning and evening prayer services, a sanctuary for congregants, had to stop. Funerals, which normally are attended by hundreds, sometimes thousands, as a source of comfort and closure, were limited to no more than 10 masked people. Other significant traditions, from food offerings to consoling family post-burial, had to be done virtually or not at all. People no longer had an outlet for their grief. One thing I did do uh, was I got on FaceTime with them. And I told them that I'm speaking to you uh, not as your doctor, but I'm speaking to you as a friend. When people no longer had access to the comfort they'd get from the congregation, Dr. Harji found herself doubling as both a physician and therapist of sorts. After working long hours, she joined grieving faith members on Zoom or FaceTime to listen, console, and recite the Salvat, a Muslim prayer for blessings, protection, and salvation. During periods of grief, we say the Salvat. And uh, so the more people there are, the more salvat you're giving, the more chanting you send to the deceased. And uh, we believe that that's their ticket to heaven. I think the Ismaili community felt a loss in that manner. There's another reason, though, that people turn to Dr. Harji. The mother of two lost her first husband in a mass shooting in Atlanta in 1999. She knows their pain firsthand, as well as the solace that can come through grieving collectively. I remember when my husband uh, was killed um, 25 years ago, it felt like the whole city was there. And I know that I didn't know all of them, but the fact that they were all there, you know, gave me comfort for us as Ismailis. Being together as a community was very important of not being able to go to the Jamaat Kana, which is our center of prayer, and do all the, uh, the rituals uh, was a big loss. It is closure, actually. It's the Islamic way of, of bringing closure to, uh, to the whole you know, sense of loss. 
The Jamaat Khanna in Decatur, Georgia, is a center for prayer, meditation, celebration, and mourning for the Ismaili community in Atlanta. A fountain trickles outside, which also masks the street noise nearby. Ismailis make up one of the largest branches of Shia Islam and are guided by an imam, His Highness, the Aga Khan. Thousands live in the Atlanta area. Emigration from Asia and Africa largely began in the 1970s, often to escape political conflicts, persecution, and poverty. This Decatur Jamaat Khanna was the first permanent building of its kind built in the United States more than 30 years ago, a symbol that this immigrant community is here to stay. Now that the prayer hall is open again after COVID restrictions were relaxed, I go inside to learn more. I'm joined by Benoush Momin. Grieving the loss of a loved one during the anxiety and fear of a pandemic can be overwhelming. She's a volunteer member of the Ismaili Council, the leadership team for the southeastern United States. There are five Jamaat Khanas in the Atlanta area and many others across the country, all of which were closed last year because of COVID. Momin says the community banded together in other ways, making masks for healthcare workers and setting up vaccination drives, but the pandemic denied them what they needed most, the ability to be together. Our faith is one that allows for not only spiritual contemplation, but the opportunity to come together, to communicate, to support one another, and to not have that, that was definitely a challenge. A challenge Jasmine would face when she buried her husband. It was like, no one expect that thing that this should happen to us or this should happen to our family members. We feel that everyone should come and pray for his soul. And uh, like we were only 10 members over there and like only me, my kids and my siblings were there. I was like, if everyone were there, that would be like many people praying for his soul. So that would be more better instead of only uh, us. But uh, that was also heartbreaking to me. But we had no options due to pandemic. Dr. Harji, who runs the nonprofit clinic we visited earlier, says it can make it harder to heal for those left behind. I think that always sticks with you. That's, that's something you always remember when you think about a family member you lost and that so many people could not attend the funeral. In our communities, family members come from all over the world to attend a funeral. You know, that's a very important um, uh, last respect you want to give a family member who is de- deceased. And uh, not being able to travel and attend and be there is, is a big loss. And all you can do is, you know, just get on Zoom and have prayer sessions and have as many rituals as you can do. Jasmine says she relied heavily on Zoom, FaceTime, and phone calls to pray together with family. It's helped her a little with healing, she says, but she knows it's a different story for her kids. My little one, he was not even two years, so he didn't know anything that what happened to his dad. And my daughter, yeah, she was nine years, so like she never showed me any tears until now. It's been a year, she never showed me any tears. But whenever she is emotional, she goes in a bathroom and she cries. And when she come back, I can see her eyes are red and her tears. I can feel that that she was crying, but she never showed me those things. 
She doesn't want to cry in front of you, is no. that why? Yes, she doesn't want to cry. As we're talking in the living room, her daughter, Ayana, comes into the kitchen looking for a snack. Hi. Her mom asks if she wants to say anything about her father. You can try, Ayana, if you want it. Ayana says no and rushes out of the room. She's also grieving and uh, she was a daddy's girl. So she is always missing her dad. The burden of grief is clearly immense. And so is the financial one. When her husband died, Jasmine didn't have health insurance. I got a bill of million dollar. She shows it to me. There it is. A charge for $941,052.66 addressed to her late husband. Legislation under the CARES Act says healthcare providers can bill the federal government for COVID-related treatment when patients are uninsured. Jasmine hasn't received a notice from the hospital since and is hoping that means the law applies to her, but she's not sure. Right now, we didn't pay any money. And of course, even though if there was no law, there was no chance that I had a million dollars with me where I can pay that bill. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, offered funeral assistance to those who lost loved ones to COVID. Jasmine didn't need it. She didn't have health insurance, but she did invest in burial insurance. Back at the cemetery, Jasmine says she's not sure what she would have done without the Ismaili community behind her. Even if most of the support had to be remote, it was there, and that mattered. Are there a lot of Ismailis buried in this cemetery? Yes, there are many. Jasmine says she used to come here a lot. She points to the headstones of some of the others in the Ismaili community she knows who also died of COVID. When a body is buried in the Ismaili faith, loved ones are discouraged from visiting the cemetery too frequently. The reason? It's just a body. The soul has long departed. Jasmine was visiting her husband's grave so often last year that her parents told her she needed to stop. Prolonging the attachment only prolongs the suffering, they said. A couple of balloons sit next to her husband's grave. She had brought them when she came last week with the kids. They've since deflated. People sometimes burn incense and pour water on top of the graves, which is thought to settle the dirt and allow plants to grow. These small rituals which could be done outdoors during the pandemic, brought her a small sense of comfort. I have in my car incense, lighter, and uh, water every time. So whenever I feel that I'm not okay, I come over here. After a roller coaster year of fear and relief, hardship and resilience, Jamath Khan has reopened over the summer. Jasmine's daughter is back in school. Life should be getting back to normal, and yet, Jasmine's is anything but. While her financial debt from COVID might be forgiven, it's the emotional debt she still carries day in and day out. And questions still linger in these quiet moments. I still think, like, what's going to happen? How am I going to take care of my kids alone? As Jasmine stands over her husband's grave, she closes her eyes and prays the answers will come. This story was produced by Zuleika Nuthu. A Better Life's executive producer is Quincy Surismith. Jocelyn Gonzalez is our technical director. Our editor is John Rudolph. Alejandro Salazar-Dyer is our director of marketing, and Caitlin Laws is our intern. 
Our theme music and original score are by Fareed Sajjan. A Better Life comes to you from Feet in Two Worlds. Since 2005, Feet in Two Worlds has been telling the stories of today's immigrants and training immigrant journalists. The Feet in Two Worlds network includes hundreds of reporters and editors. Some, like me, have been Feed in Two Worlds fellows. Others have attended our workshops and contributed to our podcast and website. Together, we're making American journalism more reflective of the diverse communities that we serve. To hear other episodes in this series or to read more about the story you just heard, visit us at abetterlifepodcast.com. I'm Mia Warren. Thanks for listening. A Better Life and Feet in Two Worlds are supported by the Ford Foundation, the David and Catherine Moore Family Foundation, an anonymous donor and readers like you. Support our work that brings immigrant voices and award-winning journalism to public radio, podcasts, and digital news sites. Make a tax-deductible contribution today at abetterlifepodcast.com.